Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. William Sticksrude and Ned Johnson. They're the authors of The Self-Driven Child, and Bill is a neuropsychologist. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at George Washington University, and he also plays in two rock bands. Ned is a self-proclaimed test prep geek. He is the founder of Prep Matters, a really successful test prep and tutoring outfit in the DC metro area there. And he is also the author of another book called Conquering the SAT. So we're really excited to talk to these guys today. And it's our first episode, by the way, with two guests. So we're going to see what happens. We're really excited to get into their book, The Self-Driven Child, which is a really cool melding of their two backgrounds and kind of stories from both of their practices and has this amazing theme of how to help teenagers build a better brain that will get them through life after they leave the home. So really excited to get into all of that and more. Thank you guys so much for making the time to be here. Well, thanks, Andy. So you guys have this new book, and it's fantastic. I just wanted to get the lowdown on how you guys teamed up. You seem like kind of an unlikely combo, but then the book turned out incredible. So what kind of led you guys to decide to work together and create this thing? So I, I'm a neuropsychologist. I've been testing kids who have learning disabilities or ADHD or autism for 30-some years. And, and my, my partner, Ned, is a very effective motivational coach and test prep guy who is remarkably effective at getting kids to do better on tests. And we, we, we met several years ago and, and, and it became clear to us that so much of what we do in terms of helping kids feel better and perform better is related to helping kids have a stronger sense of control. And Ned saw it in, in, in trying to get kids' test scores up by, 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 by reducing their stress and, get it, and helping them sleep more and expressing confidence in them. And I saw it in, in all the kids I saw who had anxiety and depression, that strategies for helping them not be so overwhelmed and helping them develop a sense of autonomy made them feel better and perform better. And so we wrote this book, which is really kind of a how-to manual for parents. And how do you help kids develop that healthy sense of control or autonomy that seems to be good for everything? So to me, if you can write a book that a few years after reading it, people even still remember a couple of the concepts that were in the book, then that's a success. And I think the big thing that I got from your book was this idea that you're kind of helping your teen build their brain. Yeah, like them succeeding at things is nice, but really what 
the success is, is that you help them build the most efficient brain kind of during this time so that when you send them mm-hmm. out into the world, they're ready for it, right? And uh, I thought that was an interesting way to kind of look at it. And I was just kind of interested if that's something that you guys saw as a theme of the book or if that was just me reading into it or uh, what you think about that. We think that's a really great read on what the message you're trying to give that that at a really fundamental level, the most important work of childhood and then adolescence is building the brain you're going to have for the rest of your life. And so we really want to think about more than what's the, the short term or, or, or medium term or long term success in terms of goals or grades or college or whatever. What does a really healthy brain look like? It's hard to develop the success you want without a healthy brain. And, and, and more importantly, because we know that all lives come with challenges, we want kids to have brains that, that make them well prepared to handle those challenges you know, capably on their own right. when, they, when right. they face them. And because we spend a lot of time studying what stress does to the developing brain, mm. you know, and, and I think that, that our concern is so many of the kids that we see, that we work with every day, are extremely stressed and extremely tired during much of their adolescence. And we know that adolescents are sculpting their adult brains through the pruning process. They're sculpting their brains. Right. And the last thing we want is for, for kids to be sculpting brains that are used to being, their default state is tired, anxious, and unhappy. Because it just makes it more likely that as they get older, even if they're successful, they won't enjoy it. Okay, so then, of course, the question is, how do we do that? And is it about what to avoid, or is it about what to seek out, or is it a combination? Well, there are a lot of things in there. I mean, one of the one of the researchers we love a lot is a guy named Michael Meany, who did this really sort of seminal study with rats and rat pups. And they, they use rats, of course, because they have brain systems similar to humans, mm. but they can do things that are terrible to rats that, that would really feel wrong doing them, to, you know, to kids. And so he did this experiment where they took rat pups, so baby baby rats, and from the day they were born, took them away from mom. And then these lab technicians with the little latex gloves would sit there and sort of handle these rats for about a half an hour. It was really stressful to them because it's this is not warm, you know, fuzzy, hairy mom sort of snuggling with them. This is ah, and and their their cortisol levels would go through the roof, and so they're just mm. it's incredibly distressing to them. But then. If they gave the pups back to mom, and mom was a high licking and grooming rat, which is kind of the rat equivalent of, of hugs and kisses, and there, 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 sweetheart, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then this cortisol sort of bleed out of them. But if they, and they did this back and forth, high stress to like total recovery. Huh. It's totally stressed out, total recovery. And it wired the brains of these rat pups in ways that were really interesting. Their prefrontal cortex, all that decision-making, executive function part of the brain, emotional flexibility and emotional control, was able to very capably regulate their stress response, their amygdala, to the point that these pups, as when they became mature rats, the scientists gave them the, the term California laid-back rats, <laughs> that they were almost impossible to stress because in the presence of a stressor, the higher-order thinking part of the brain is saying, hey, this is going to be, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because all of their experience told them that it always had been and therefore they imagined that it always would be. And so then as adults, they were fantastically mm-hmm. more resilient. They were fantastically more courageous, you know, not inclined to hide in the corners, but actually go out and explore the, the, their little rat world. And so what we believe is that this applies to kids as well. That we want kids to both experience some moderate stressors, not things that are toxic, but things that they can handle themselves. You don't make the soccer team, you don't get good grades, your boyfriend breaks up with you. Unhappy things, but normal parts of life. 
And when parents try to shield kids from that, they kind of blow up one part of that equation of, of having kids feel some distress. But they also uh. blow up part, the second part of it by not being that high licking and you know, grooming parent, that high nurturing, <laughs> low stress parent that allows kids to go from stress in real life to home being a total safe base of very low stress. When we're anxious parents, we deprive them the opportunities to experience things and handle things by themselves. And we also do an inadequate job of being that low stress that's so helpful to, to a developing brain. I think there's been a lot of stuff written lately about, you know, helicopter parenting and, oh, you just need to let your kids, you know, experience more setbacks and failures and that's going to be good for them. But of course, there's a lot of nuance there. And there's some areas where, yes, you're probably not giving your kid enough freedom right now. And there's some areas where maybe actually right now you're already giving them too much freedom. So what I loved about your guys' book was that you kind of like broke it down, but through the lens of what you're talking about right now, which is like helping them actually practice the strategies now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, letting them experience those small failures, but then also helping them to figure out on their own how they're going to fix it and kind of scaffolding that for them in a really cool way. So what are some of those areas where maybe parents already right now need to like back off a little bit? And then what are some of the flip side of the coin where actually maybe you already need to worry about how much freedom your teen already has? So the, the second chapter in our book, it's called, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. <laughs> yeah. and, and homework is certainly one of the areas that we feel that it's crazy for homework to be a big fight. And what we, we suggest is parents say, I love you too much to fight with you about your work, but I'm willing to do anything I can to help you. I'm willing to be your homework consultant, and I'm willing to, to sit with you from 6.30 to 7.30 every night. I'm willing to get a tutor if you need it. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to, I, don't, I don't want you to fail. I want you to be as successful as you want to be. But I'm not going to take responsibility for it because if I do, I'll weaken you because I'll support the idea that somebody other than you is responsible for it. And so we, we think that, that homework is kind of the model of this idea of a parent serving as a consultant to their kid as opposed to the kid's manager or boss or enforcer. Mm. And we just think it's, it's a really useful metaphor to think about what our job is and whose life is it. And our feeling is that from pretty early on, it's useful to think this is really the kid's life. And our job is not to, to mold them in a certain way. Our job is to help them figure out ultimately who they want to be and support their development. So uh, as many things as we can, uh, from our point of view, we want kids to be making decisions for themselves. We want to to minimize the extent that we're trying to force kids to do stuff. At the same time, the second piece of what you're asking about, technology is probably the the main area that comes up again and again in terms of of where do you set the limits and and are, are parents giving kids too much freedom? And with the technology, we laugh because every parent presentation we give, we're always surprised if technology is not the first question that, that people ask. And mm. you know, anyone who's paying attention to this knows that the way technology has been designed today, it's as addictive as it could be. Yeah. And it has real yeah. implications for people's mental health, physical health, happiness, f- focus, self-control, you know, so on and so forth. 
And the challenge, the other part to that, though, is that, is that kids, particularly once they become teenagers, are so much more technologically sophisticated than the parents. And so yeah. trying to be a kind of command and control parent is pretty hard when, when you're, you're steps behind what your kids can do with technology. And so, so our feeling on this is that you, it's kind of collaborative problem solving. You know, sweetheart, I can't in good faith, you know, I can't as a parent feel, feel good about having you be in front of, you know, on, on Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or, or, you know, any screen for hours and hours at a time. I know that these right. things are fun for you and I know that they're important because they, to you because this is how you connect with your friends. But mm. I really, we should sit down and, and have a conversation about what are things that we can both feel okay about so that you have these you know, you have these connections to your friends, but you're doing it in a way that I, as your mo- mom or dad, can also feel okay about. And and we're going to make sure. your use of this technology contingent upon y- your, you know, abiding by what, what we collectively agree to. Because in some ways we do have leverage, right? I mean, there are very few kids that are going out, you know, delivering newspapers at five o'clock in the morning to, to get enough money to pay for their iPhones. And that's just that just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and so we don't want to be command and control, but we also want to say, hey, you know, use it however you want. Because for so many kids, they will overuse technology in ways that all the science suggests is not good for, for healthy brain development. Right, of course not. You mentioned the parent as a consultant, which I thought was a really cool idea from the book. And at one point, there was a letter. You guys in throughout the book have letters with like little stories of different people. And one of them was about this parent who was talking about like how you mentioned like her consulting hours. And I wonder if that was like a thing that you teach parents to have certain hours, like almost like office hours from a professor that are like their consulting hours that they're available to help their children with something and then what to do if your kid needs help outside of that time. Yeah, I, I wrote a, a paper that got published in a different form in, of all places, McCall's Magazine 37 years <laughs> ago, uh, where, where I just introduced this idea of, of thinking about yourself as a consultant to your kid. Mm. And, and I, I also had little kids at the time, including a, a, a kid who didn't learn easily. And I, and I applied the same thing where I, I, I said, I'm willing to do anything I can to help. But I'm not willing to, to, to fight all the time. I'm not willing to reinforce the idea that somebody other than you is responsible for your own education. And I would literally, I'd say, I'm available between 6.30 and 7.30. And, and, and my, my, other, my daughter didn't need my help, but my kid did. And he'd come to me whenever, whenever he needed it. Or I'd, I'd see something, I'd see an assignment that he's working on. It was sloppy. Or I said, I said, I'd say, do you want any feedback about that? And sometimes you say, sure. And other times it's not, I, I got it. And I just ah. said, okay, this is your education. And, and he didn't have an easy time learning, but, but he was completely independent. He had some tutoring. But he, he managed stuff himself, came to me when he wanted help, came to me for help a lot in high school with writing. Uh, and mm. got a PhD eventually. And, and I, I just know that if you, if you just acknowledge reality, that it's the kid's work, it's not really your work, that it works better. And consulting hours help to reinforce that idea that, that I'm willing to help, but I'm, but this isn't my work. Mm. And it also like makes your time seem more valuable to the kid to where they maybe will respect it or value it a little more too, which I think is especially important for teenagers, right? Yeah, the kids who procrastinate and, and avoid their work, you say, look, it's much easier rather than trying to chase them around the house and get them to sit down. It's much easier to say, I'm available, but here's my hours. And if yeah. they miss their hours, you know, well, we'll, we'll talk tomorrow. 
hey, sorry, right? I told you beforehand, right? It was on the calendar. That's right. And it works. Yeah, they only have to miss it a couple of times, right, before they start to realize that you're not going (laughs) to, you really mean it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I noticed even just when you were kind of giving that example, you, I think, kind of just do this unconsciously now. You use like that little autonomy affirmation there. You know, you said, would you like some feedback on this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead yeah. of just saying, oh, hey, this is really sloppy and blah, 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 which I think is what parents do way too often is just feel like their job is to give the feedback. And, and so one concept that runs throughout the book, which I don't think enough people are talking about, is the need for autonomy and this reactance that I think is, is really powerful during the teenage years. And so that was kind of one example that you just gave right there in terms of not just giving advice, but asking your kids, hey, would, would you like some advice on that? And then, so of course, the flip side is if you do that, you have to be okay with if they say <laughs> right. no you are not going to be able to give that advice because they said no. So, okay. So I wonder in your experience by asking that, do they most of the time say, yes, I'd like the advice or is it like 50, 50 or not? And then also what are some other kind of little ways that you affirm autonomy? It takes, it takes some time. It takes some time, you know, but, but, but part of it, I have yet to have the experience. And if you have any listeners who have, I'd love to hear it, but I have never had the experience of giving people advice that they told me they don't want and have it be successful. <laughs> right? be, great, be grateful for it. Yeah. Right. And like, thanks for telling me. Shoving that down my throat. Oh, right, right, right. You know, and part of it, if you think about, you know, from a brain perspective, this prefrontal cortex, all the executive functions, right, where people can plan and, and think about the future, you know, and weigh pros and cons and, you know, mental, emotional flexibility. I mean, this is, this is the part of the brain you, you want to be having a conversation with. Your threat detector, your amygdala, when this when this fires, when you get defensive, the the kind of thinking part of your brain kind of goes bye bye. And so, if I want to be mm-hmm. having you know a, a serious conversation with my kid, I want him to be listening and weighing the pros and cons and really thinking this through. But if I force things on him, you know, he's likely to be immediately defensive. In which case, he's going to defend his position or defend his reasons not to listen to me, rather yeah. than actually listening to me. So, so I, you know, I. I do the exact same thing with my son and say, hey, you know, would, you like, would you like some help with that? No, I got it. Okay. Would you want some feedback on that? You know, would you like, is it, can it may make a suggestion? But, and most of the time, he'll say he has it. And a lot of times, it's just my own darn anxiety that I feel like I need to push on this. <laughs> but, but what will happen is a lot of times, he'll come back and he'll be curious and say, what, what was the thing you were going to say? Or he'll say, yeah, I really want help. And he now will, when he really does want help, he'll come to me and ask. Because, you know, I think any kid who's ever gone through school has had the experience where you ask your mom or dad, could you just look at this one word or this one sentence? And then parents pick up a pen and proofread the whole darn thing. Uh, and the kids are like, oh, my gosh, I will never, ever, ever again ask for help because that was so painful. Uh, where as yeah, a yeah. consultant, I'm giving help that is asked for. And it just, it, it, it does take a while because if you've been a command and control kind of person, you can't just do this once and think it's going to gonna change. The yeah. kid has to have confidence that you're not going to flip back in the other mode. But one of the things that's really interesting you know, that, that I started doing this, my wife and I started doing this with my son in fifth grade and really overtly trying to ask, would you like help on that? Can I give you a suggestion? And sometimes he took it and sometimes he didn't. And sometimes he didn't take the test and totally screwed things up. But he learned from that and, and he come back later. And so, you know, I totally bombed that quiz. Well, do you know why he bombed that quiz? 
well, yeah, because I missed too many questions. Like, were they things you should have gotten right or, or the things you, you, you thought you knew and you forgot or you didn't study the right stuff? Well, I'm not sure I studied the right stuff. And we go down this and, you know, plain 20 questions and finally get to the thing. Well, maybe may make a suggestion on what might help you next time to make sure you've got the right, you know, you're studying the right stuff. Yeah, yeah what do you recommend? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's fantastic. But the thing that really is cool is I had experience probably five, six weeks ago. My son, who, like his dad, is a little geeky, uh, is a sophomore in high school, and they had this big school dance. And this was the first time he got invited to that party that's after the dance, like where all the cool kids, you know, right, that, right? And so he was excited. He was a little apprehensive because this is a new, this is, it's an unfamiliar territory for him. Sure, And so my friend, we were out for a walk in the afternoon. He said, hey, Dad, can can I ask a question? Yeah, pal. (laughs) What, what what do I do if I'm at the party and, and kids are drinking alcohol? Mm. Man, that's the question I want to have with my kid. Yeah. From my perspective, I'm certain that if I had been on his behind all the time about his homework, forcing help on him that he said he, he didn't want, mm. he would never ask me that kind of question. And yeah. he would feel that all of this, what I think of as wisdom, he would feel like this was stuff that was being done to him rather than stuff that's being done for him. Huh. And because I want to be on his team and I want him to feel that I love and support him and not resist what, what might arguably be in his own best interest because it's being forced upon him. Yeah. We're here with Bill Sticksrude and Ned Johnson, authors of The Self-Driven Child, and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. This kid's problem, this is part of his path. For all we know, this is exactly where the kid's supposed to be in his life, even if he's having a tough time. But the more that we can see that and and not be so anxious and fearful, the more we can communicate to a kid, this is part of your path. You'll get through this, you'll learn from it, you'll, you'll grow from it, and I have confidence that you can figure this out. The concern is that with this 24-7 connection technologically, the kids aren't having adequate time to really develop this efficient default mode network where they, can, they actually can think about themselves and think about their lives and develop that coherent sense of self and that sense of empathy. There are some studies where young adults who were asked to sit with their own thoughts for 15 minutes and 60-some percent of the, the young men, the, the, the older adolescents in the study, chose to shock themselves, administer electric shock, <laughs> after six minutes. You know, it, it was so painful to sit with their own thoughts. And what we're saying is that, that given the pace of life and given this constant connection, we need more downtime in our life where we aren't doing anything, where the mind is kind of recovering and, and reconnecting. Right, because, I mean, we live in a world where even when you're on the elevator for 12 seconds, you look around you and everyone pulls out their phone to yeah. mm-hmm. check. You're pumping so, gas now. they got the TVs when you're pumping gas. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them at urinals, too. It's like, wait, wow, is that is that necessary? <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. Accident waiting to happen. So... Um, <laughs> I will feel so much more comfortable letting you drive the car of your life if you can tell me what your plan is for these things. And, and I won't have this movie in my head of, of you going all Thelma Louise and driving the thing right off the cliff. <laughs> if I can articulate all the things that I'm anxious about and together we can figure out that you, you know, hashtag you've got this, it'll make it easier for me to step back a little bit. And one of our mottos is that kids have a brain in their head and they want their lives to work. 
And I think they, that, that, that generally, that, that by supporting that, that desire, that kids want to be successful, that they don't want to screw up, they don't want to disappoint their parents, and that working with that energy is really helpful. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.